Well, hello again, everybody. It's another Pivotal Conversations. Today, uh, we've got our usual format of going over a few interesting news items, and then we've got a guest. And before we get to the news stuff, why don't you introduce yourself, guest? Yeah, my name is Rohit Kelapur. Um, I work on the Pivotal Cloud Foundry Solutions team. Uh, we are also known as the Pivotal Cloud Foundry Services team. My day job involves uh, helping customers install Pivotal Cloud Foundry um, on, on their uh, infrastructure as a service. Um, a second aspect of my job involves um, migrating applications onto Pivotal Cloud Foundry. Um, so there is two aspects to my job. Um, and most of what we are going to talk about today involves um, migrating applications, decomposing them in microservices, some of the trade-offs and challenges involved in moving applications to, uh, to Cloud Foundry. Yeah, exactly. That's, you know, you have a, a a webinar that you've done recently. We worked on an ESB paper a while ago and uh, over at your blog, there's always all sorts of things about uh, uh, breaking the monolith, which, uh, you know, I was going over the, we'll get to it, the the sort of questions I might ask you. And, and uh, the liberal arts major in me was kicking in with the uh, sort of a close reading of this idea of breaking a monolith. But anyhow, we'll we'll have to uh, we'll have to go over that when when we get to it, as as it were. First, there's a few little news items to go over uh, that I think are actually pretty uh, pretty pertinent to to our stuff here. It's it's not. I have one thing that's highly unpertinent. Oddly mm-hmm. enough, though, it it is. But uh, the first thing I I noticed this last week. You know, having having worked in uh, M and A and corporate strategy, I, I I get all giddy when there's some gigantic uh, merger or acquisition. I haven't quite figured out what to call this one. But it looks like it's confirmed that our, our friends over at HP Enterprise or HPE are, as they say, divesting of their software group. Now, you'll have to, you two will have to um, tell me your view on this. I never actually found a, a list of the assets that were coming and going, as it were. Wait, that, is, that are remaining and going. But I think it's basically most everything is going over to MicroFocus, except like the OpenStack stuff. Which, which would also be the, um, the, the cloud foundry stuff that we have, kind of like that they have, like the, the sort of pure cloud software. So I think in the systems group at HP is where they file away their cloud stuff. And there's some software over there. I think that software is staying, but everything else over to MicroFocus. That's right. Everything must go. Yeah, it was a lot of this stuff. Um, looked around. I think the headliners were... You know some of their big acquisitions they've done in the past that they, that they let go of. So autonomy being the big one that they had bought what for almost eleven billion dollars however many years ago. So you know things like that I think disappear as part of this. But yeah, keeping the OpenStack stuff, keeping the Cloud Foundry stuff. You know, trying to figure out what their core competency is around hardware and, and that part of the stack, and trying to to lean up a little bit. We'll see if it works. Yeah, it was also a good opportunity to, to uh, relearn about MicroFocus, a company I haven't looked at in a long time. <laughs> I I think I was reading some some coverage of this, and and when all the numbers have done, they'll have like tripled their revenue. So it's a it's a interesting. Uh, se- seems good for them. That'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see what's there. It reminded me I used to also work at uh, BMC a while ago, uh, and in the in the early two thousands, the team I was on at BMC was all freaked out about Mercury something that uh, is, is in that bundle of stuff. So it's, you know, there's there's a good walk down memory lane of things. What a good name for, yeah. for a software portfolio, Mercury. So cool. From 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 the perspective of, a, of an application software developer, the only software that I remember using from HP is their load test runner. Totally. I forget what it was. 
what it was called but that was the only thing that i remember from hp and that was so painful to use back then you had to schedule time on it and um just that that is my only thing that i remember about hp software yeah and i'll i'll ha- i'll have to go look this up but i think i think or I'll, I'll actually probably never look it up but you know just pretend like i will i i think i think uh i think microfocus also bought the test automation stuff from compuware some time ago and mm-hmm. so they'll have like I always get them mixed up. I think the Mercury one was like silk test, but it was like, I mean, they're still pretty big in uh, automated testing. And so they'll, they'll, uh, they'll have a pretty big portfolio of testing tools, which is, which is thrilling. Indeed. So, so the other, the other acquisition news, uh, I, I think I saw you tweet about this first, uh, Richard, I, maybe I didn't, mm-hmm. but, uh, is, is that Google bought Apogee, which is, which is, uh, I would say most notable in that Google doesn't buy a lot of big companies in the uh, infrastructure space. Maybe in the consumer right. ad space, they buy big things. And, and, and like if you want to control your AC and stuff like that, they'll give you a lot of money. <laughs> but uh, when it comes to like this kind of stuff, I think they usually prefer to buy small and do things on their own. Indeed, that was a small acquisition. Apogee is a friend of the family, as is Google. You know, we, we've been doing some great stuff together with them. So this is a good you know, piece of news for Pivotal customers. And yeah, we love Apogee. They do great stuff with API management. And you know, we've got some cool integrations with them with route services. And this was a pretty big acquisition. I think it was, what was it, 650 Something million or like so in, in cash? I think it was small bills unmarked. Right. So it was a good transaction there. But you know, what's going to be interesting is did they buy them because they couldn't build this themselves? Meh. Did they buy them because they have a really great customer list and this helps them increasingly with their enterprise credibility? That seems more likely. Yeah. I, I was thinking, you know, apropos to uh, our, our nominal topic on this episode, maybe it's just like a gigantic like strangler pattern play on like private cloud and stuff like that, right? Like if you make everything go over to use an API hosted by Apogee, you can slowly just get rid of all the 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 non the non cloud stuff behind it be very exciting. Well, I mean, gigantic strangler is is probably going to be your nickname after this episode. <laughs> that's that's right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think I think uh, I, I think watching Google uh, have have a run at uh, building up their enterprise thing and and uh, and gobbling up a lot more than they currently have. It's that's that's fascinating, and you know, mm-hmm. and it's it's kind of related to the. Uh, uh, there's a lot, uh, as as it were, going on in the the large tech company space. Lots of reinventing and going private or divesting or not going on. Like I think I think last week we at Pivotal also officially became part of uh, Dell, or I should say Dell Technologies. And so there's mm-hmm. uh, there's that would be if if you're interested as I am at like looking at the tech industry. I think in the next five years it'll be uh, it'll be fun times as far Thank as you. entertainment value. Hopefully you'll be on the right side of the fun times. <laughs> yeah, we all hope. So, so then you wrote up a uh, a piece, Richard, uh, that I think I think allowed me to remember a few other things that I don't know if we've uh, mentioned here. Well, we mentioned the the survey, uh, the the container survey a while ago, but but you had a crack at the uh, sort of what's up with containers and the history of it recently. It was published last week. It was yeah, yeah, last Thursday. I mean, there's the the fracas that's been going on in the. Uh, Docker space. And, you know, I learned from my last job as a cloud provider to not do two things. First of all, you never gloat when another cloud provider has an outage because, you know, that's going to be you at some point soon and it hurts the industry as a whole. 
And the same goes for open source. The second thing is, you know, open source is hard. It's hard to monetize open source. So, you know, as this challenge of Docker figuring out what things do they make available kind of in open source and what consortiums are they part of versus where do they innovative, innovate uniquely, that's a hard problem. I know you don't, but it does create some uncertainty for customers. And so the one thing I wrote about was simply let's remind people of the Cloud Foundry history and that we think infrastructure is supposed to be reliable and stable, maybe boring. And that's what you want out of infrastructure because you're building crazy apps on top. Your infrastructure should never be categorized as crazy. It should be just, hey, it just does its job successfully. And we've been doing containers for years before there was ever popularity in the mainstream around containers. We've been evolving it. You know, we containerize Windows and Linux, unlike anyone else at this point, at least in production. So it was just kind of a quick recap of we think infrastructure is supposed to be boring you know, Cloud Foundry customers don't have to worry about this sort of mayhem going on with containers right now because we believe platform abstractions matter and we're able to do things at the container level without ever screwing up with customers. So, you know, I think there's something that we should all just be educated on that. It doesn't mean you stop using one technology or another, but you should be very well aware as to what's happening because it could impact whatever is running in your data center. Yeah, and and there's uh, the, the related thing I was thinking of is there's a... Uh... Uh, so Abby, who is the uh, she, she's she's a pivotal person, but currently a fellow over at the Cloud Foundry Foundation. She had a brief little write up. I think it was on the O'Reilly radar. It's always difficult for me to pull apart the octopus of O'Reilly properties or maybe it's a squid. Who knows? But anyways, uh, she had a write up of sort of like the top three interesting things from the uh, the Cloud Foundry Foundation's container survey, which, as you can imagine, is uh includes cloud foundry talk not just uh not it like most other surveys <laughs> but i th- i think one of the more interesting charts in there was just um what are what are the difficulties you have with with dealing with containers and and i think i think to your point of crazy infrastructure just managing them was uh mm-hmm. was was i think the number one thing and the other ones Absolutely. are kind of variations on that well, it seems like people who have to deal with this stuff, their number one concern is not management. That means they're not using it yet. I mean, <laughs> right? right? Otherwise, right, you're screwing right. around with it, right? I mean, my when I'm learning Spring, my concern is not managing apps in production. It's I can't bootstrap this thing right because I'm a monkey. So people who answer that way haven't used the technology yet. If you don't have pain with Docker right now, you're not using it because everybody should, right? Even Cloud Foundry or other things, once things get big, they get tricky, and those are the people who I really love hearing from because they're solving really hard problems with any technology that, that gets more complicated as it scales. Mm, exactly. So so finally, before we get to, uh, I don't know, the, the realm of which was, was what was once sane, placid infrastructure and then and then through <laughs> through a process of aging becomes crazy infrastructure, otherwise known as dealing with legacy. I, I noticed one one quick thing uh, that I wanted to note here. That mm-hmm. now I don't know if this was based on a survey or or some p equals point nine or some sort of thorough analysis or just the opinion of person the person that wrote this piece. But I noticed a piece that says pink hair is now mainstream. People, you know, you can use it for highlights. They're seeing all age brackets going having pink hair. So yeah. you know, there's there's uh, there's a little bit of a subcult uh, in, in in our space of of infrastructure management and stuff of people having pink hair. And I just you know I think I think now it's official. You know, there, there was a time analogously where if you were going bald, you just would have as a man, you'd have to look like a monk. That was just the way it was. <laughs> but then all of a sudden, I think maybe it was around, uh, you know, the 13 monkeys. What was that thing with uh, with uh, the uh, the guy who was in the, the tower with the kidnapping? Uh, what's his name? Bruce. Bruce, not Wayne. What? The other one. 
Willis. Yeah, Bruce Willis. There you 12 go. Twelve monkeys. I mean, you're one monkey too big. Yeah. Oh, it was, it, it was twelve. So, anyways, remember in that movie he was bald, and I think maybe that kicked off that if you were losing hair as a man, you could just shave your head, and no one would be like, "Oh, it's a bald person." They'd be like, "That guy looks cool." So, similarly, I think this is maybe the watershed moment for pink hair. Doesn't matter where you are, you can have pink hair. I think it's colored hair because I'm, you know, it's it's go back to school season. So my Facebook feed is full of people taking the first day of school pictures, and there's a lot of the kids with colored hair, which made me how it's gone past coolness because now there's an eight year old with a, a purple strand in the front. I see. Now that's a vanguard situation right there. That's like way <laughs> out front, just multiple hair. In 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 the back ranks of comfortude, we're just we're kicking it with the pink <laughs> hair and the bald heads. So there you go. So uh, yeah, if you feel a little out of place at a DevOps days. Just go, just go, just go pink. You'll be fine. You'll totally fit in. So on that note, someone who, as I recall, doesn't really have pink hair, although maybe things have changed since last time we've met. You know, uh, like, like I, I was recently watching one of your webinars. Did I say webinar? Webinars. And uh, it was like, it was like 90 minutes. And I was thinking this is like the longest webinar I've ever come across. But as 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 I was watching it, you basically have a uh, let's let's say a condensed version of a book on tape about mm-hmm. like dealing with legacy software <laughs> and you know breaking monoliths apart. So it was it was good stuff. You just Definitely. you know I have this habit of just like laundry listing my way through things, and and I do that because I like it. And that's uh, I think you were doing that pretty effectively. There's all sorts of patterns you were going through, but. Before, before before we get to yeah. to the uh, what's out drying on the laundry line, like what? Uh, how did you get into the situation where you're, you're talking about breaking up monoliths and dealing with legacy and stuff all the time? How'd that come about? Yeah, I mean, I joined the I, the PCF Solutions Group as a as a consultant, and we basically uh, our job was to install Cloud Foundry. But what we found that after installing Cloud Pivotal Cloud Foundry, um, there uh, Customers had a hard time getting their applications running on the platform, so it was the equivalent of building a super highway and not having any cars running on it. Um, given that uh, a number of people on the team uh, had background in application servers and in Spring, um, we then sort of created a, a one. Our team created a, an engagement model around migrating applications. Um, and so when you move applications to Cloud Foundry, sometimes you can't move the entire application or um, it's not the right end state. So then uh, having done this a number of times, we created patterns and recipes around how to move these existing applications to, to Cloud Foundry or to the cloud. And then what is the right way to break them apart? So there are, multi- there, there are multiple scenarios. Uh, there are multiple uh, trade-offs around around each around making a decision so that's how i came into this uh, becoming more of a of getting a deep dive into this process of breaking monoliths and then i got interested in the theory behind breaking monoliths uh, you start reading the work of uh, vernon vaughn and uh, eric evans um, and then his latest book which i meant to everyone which is ddd distilled uh, which is a short 200 pages um, that's the best book to read in the entire series that will get you caught up on all the mm. uh, 20,000 pages of domain-driven design theory behind my services. Well, you know, I like anything that's distilled. So that that's, <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah. Now, you know, I have I have this uh, like like cheesy definition of of legacy and, and we'll use monolith and legacy somewhat synonymously that I use, which is, you know, legacy is like any code. 
that any code that you have to change that you're basically afraid to change. And so I, I, want, I wonder, like, how do you define legacy? Um, to me, legacy has, it doesn't have a single definition. Some, I look at legacy as something that makes money, right? Um, I don't call it legacy. Oftentimes we call it classic applications. Right. Um, so, I mean, that makes money. <laughs> That's legacy. <laughs> right. That's 80% of your app portfolio right there. Stuff that is written in uh, 15-year-old frameworks that talks to mainframes and does weird stuff that that you know you cannot touch because it 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 is it does all of commercial insurance uh, things like that. Those those are typically your legacy applications. But but it seems it seems like there's some aspect of it of like uh, it's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> right like like right if, well i mean it's if, hard to change like yeah. you said i like, think that's a big point. yeah so uh, an aspect so typically a legacy application is an application that is uh, that has grown and morphed over time uh, it had a certain intent uh, when it was designed before and uh, either explicitly or due to various factors it has grown to a point where it has become difficult to maintain difficult to update uh, people find it uh, People hesitate to touch it because they don't understand the the complete the ramifications of changing one component of the system. Um, these these are these are typically big balls of mud, um, and those those could also be categorized as legacy applications. Um, these are large code bases that have grown and and serve a substantial need for all our customers. Um, I define those as legacy applications. Um, so there are there are various layers and tiers to it. Um, typically, we we differentiate applications into two two types: green greenfield and brownfield. Brownfield applications fall into this big category of applications that already exist, um, and um, greenfield applications are ones that you typically start new. Greenfield apps are typically apps that you go to start dot spring dot io and spin up as uh, your your typical reference spring application with the right set of dependencies whereas with the legacy app this is an app that already exists in subversion cvs um, or git that you are that that you are modifying or updating most of the applications that that enterprises work on are are brownfield or legacy or classic applications whatever whatever you call it right yeah no, and 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 to your point about it being the uh i don't know in 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 a profit world the the revenue generator or enabler of a company that's that's the one of the things i often uh note notice about the large organizations we talk with is one of their defining characteristics is having a lot of legacy applications right like there's not there's not a lot of brand new startups that start life with legacy applications you know maybe not any that's true but yes and no but as you define these things sometimes are hard to build that even you know when i worked at a cloud computing startup there were apps we would have considered legacy with that were the first things that got built and they weren't really built <laughs> yeah. for agility right they were built to you know here's a sharepoint site for stuff oh good lord we hated that thing after the first year or two but it kind of became the legacy because it was it was hard to update nobody knew what was going on but i think you're again your point these are the things that make most companies money so anybody coming in arrogantly saying get rid of your legacy and make it all whatever I think we're trying to make sure we show people that the agility is the value and those apps don't matter, mm. but maybe it's time yeah. to modernize them. And I think that's the message that uh, in the earlier, uh, there is a, there was somewhat of a messaging problem around, uh, there is actually, I still believe, somewhat of 
a messaging problem around Cloud Foundry where Cloud Foundry was initially modeled as just a place for for cloud native apps, for 12-factor apps. It's, that's not the case. You can run apps that are of various degrees of 12-factor in Cloud Foundry uh, with, with certain trade-offs as long as you understand those trade-offs. So it's a place where you can run all kinds of processes, not just cloud native applications, but you can run also legacy applications in Cloud Foundry. It's just you have to understand some of the, the constraints that the cloud imposes on you. Um, so that that is what we that is what I and our group does in our day daytime jobs, which is we move applications to the cloud, and they don't just become cloud native overnight. There's there's a there's a scale where you have to first first becomes compliant with four factors, and then six factors, and then it becomes cloud native. So not all applications are your end up as your ideal application. Sometimes you just do barely enough to get it running because those benefits are good enough. Um, so there's a scale here us? in terms of cloud nativity as well. Yeah, I mean, tell us about that scale. So, I mean, I think it's also can be a misunderstanding, as you, you mentioned, of where the right places to run are, but even how far you have to go. That For some people, doing two factors and making something cloud-friendly is good enough for that particular app, and then they can move on. What, what do you think of that spectrum? What is that spectrum from end to end? Yeah, I think the spectrum varies from, like you said, just uh, fixing the configuration so that it runs in, in Cloud Foundry or eliminating your application server dependencies so that you are not heavily tied to the app server, fixing those so that the app can run in Spring Boot and Tomcat, putting it in Cloud Foundry. Uh, the, you, our goal initially when we move applications is to do the bare minimum changes necessary to move it to the cloud. Once Once it reaches or it starts running locally in Tomcat, then it becomes easier to fix all the other factors. So uh, you, you almost, when you are breaking these bigger applications, your goal is to do the least amount of work possible to get them to the cloud and then you iterate uh, Then you iterate on the application and get more and more factors compliant. So for a bigger application, your typical challenges revolve around configuration. Um, because the configuration is typically strewn all over the place. Uh, another challenge that we see that I see often is that they are heavily tied to the application server. So you have to uh, you have to uh, you have to remove the application server dependency. Use the features of Spring Boot, where Spring Boot magically wires up data sources, databases, messaging queues, and so on. Security becomes an issue because sometimes security is tied to uh, local OS mechanisms. So you have to use a more federated model and so on. So the 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 factors vary a lot, but is the key is to start small and then iterate. Uh, first, get your app to the cloud and then start fixing some of the other factors. Um, on your big, so I categorize apps in sort of three categories: in low, medium, high. It helps to think of those like that. For your high apps that are huge applications that are your that are distributed monoliths. In those kinds of applications where you simply cannot move the entire application, it is too painful. For those kinds of applications, then you have to undergo a series of exercises to figure out where the schemes lie for those applications. What is a good way to split this application into smaller units that you can start uh, remediating before you move to the cloud? For low and medium size applications, typically, initially, it's just a matter of making changes to certain packaging and then put it on Cloud Foundry and see what breaks. But for your big monoliths, right, for your uh, for your super size monoliths, you have to undergo 
you have to do a series of uh, exercises, be it event storming or uh, context mapping um, or or just whiteboarding to figure out what kind of design decisions have gone into the distributed monolith before you put to the cloud. So there's different approaches depending on the size of the application. So, so it seems like, you know, when I was uh, reading through some stuff and watching through your webinar that, uh, and in my mind, I was starting to theorize that there's maybe, I don't know what percentage of it is, if it's like a 30% or a 60% or what kind of situation, but there's sort of like common things you do when you're you're migrating a, a, a legacy app or or breaking apart a monolith. And for example, you named, you named a few there, like, like uh, well, if you're, you're probably in the area of security, you're going to have to do something if it relies mm-hmm. on like local OS things, or if you've got some like hardware key management thing or, or whatever. And then, you know, another common one would be the way you configure this at runtime probably has to change. And and so, I mean, I'm curious, A, like if you think there's a significant amount of common things you have to change, and then mm-hmm. B, like what, what are some of those things? Like what are the What's the template of stuff that that you go into a project with and think like, well, more than likely, we're going to have to change these things around? Yeah, it's very simple, uh, Michael. We've done, I've done it. We've done it so many times. Typically, what we first do is when we get an application that we have to move to Cloud Foundry, um, we try to get it running uh, locally in Tomcat. Right, that's our first step. We try to uh, what what we do is that we look at the dependencies of the project of the application. We try to. Uh, we try to not we try we convert it to Spring Boot. So we introduced a Spring Boot starter project in the Maven dependency uh, tree of the project. So essentially, the the high level steps are bootify the application, um, get it running locally, and once it starts running locally, push the application to Cloud Foundry, and then uh, fix things that break. Those are the top four high level steps. Um, when before the fact when you get it running locally at that time you remove the dependency on the application servers Mm. you let spring boot or spring framework set things up in terms of uh, in terms of data sources typically the things that we end up configuring are databases and messaging Um, and once uh, spring the beauty of spring in in more in the recent times is that the development experience the the developer development code is identical whether the app runs locally or in the cloud right. with uh, with with configuration options like profiles uh, and with intelligence around how just the spring boot core libraries work once you have the app running locally you have an 80 to 90 degree uh, 80 to 90% confidence that the app just runs unchanged uh, in in cloud foundry so that that's our typical flow we the first thing that we do is we build it you you will not believe in certain cases there is not even a build script we start with writing an ant uh, yeah. not and with a, a maven build or a gradle build for the project we introduce the spring boot starters as a parent pom and then uh, we, we get the process rolling yeah, I, I mean, I mean, uh, have, having talked with uh, with other people who are like thrown into a uh, a legacy situation, like it seems like uh, as as you were kind of joking there about about building, sometimes like you're not even like migrating, you're just sort of like introducing sanity into the situation, like like in, in, instead of like copying source code around to someone's laptop and stuff like that, you're just like, no, 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 we should have a uh, a process to do this. 
Yeah, I mean, we uh, writing tests is also a big part of it because oftentimes the because of the the pro people and process aspect of these organizations is not where we want it to be. The testing in in a lot of cases is completely manual. Um, a core part of replatforming is adding tests to figure out to just. Uh, adding custom health indicators that Spring Boot can use to figure out if the app is healthy, adding some smoke test to validate external function, things like that. We also do that. It's not just a matter of adding and modifying source code. Whenever we modify source code, it, we also add smoke tests to make sure that the, the app does what it is supposed to. Uh, so adding tests is also a key part of uh, replatforming and refactoring applications so so there, there's another uh sort of like microscopic thing that i was trying to generalize i i think i think i think when when you were discussing uh data migration which is you know a whole topic on its own um mm -hmm. like what one of the things that you noted was interesting is that you 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 know you could use these tools to sort of like suck out and transform your data model and you know migrate it that way but then you were noting that like you know you like to start with a uh, a pristine i think you said green data model but a brand new <laughs> data model and yeah. and uh, you know as an aside i i think if i remember right you kind of indicated like you know because maybe you don't need that stuff or you didn't say it that way exactly and so you know, it reminded me, and I see this as a re reoccurring pattern, especially when it comes to like audit and compliance and changing your process. But then, but then you talk with large organizations, you have a lot of mainframe stuff, and uh, they basically bring up this point that like one of the challenges is that maybe you don't need all of that code or all that compliance stuff. I mean, it's like the, uh, it's like we had heavy trash pickup here earlier today, and I was thinking like, how many times have I moved this box of stuff around from various houses I've lived in? Right. Like I should have just gotten rid of it. And, exactly, and yeah. similarly, I mean, it seems like there's a good opportunity to uh, get rid of stuff that's not needed anymore. Yeah. I mean, so even when we talk of trans legacy, uh, breaking a monolith and legacy transformation, there is there is a universe of applications that are Java applications or .NET applications. Right. Then there is an entire parallel universe of stuff that is locked in the mainframe. Right. That is that is dying to get out. Um, a lot of the mainframe applications are just like batch processes. This this batch, uh, this COBOL job runs, writes a file. Another COBOL job runs, picks up that file, does some transformation. A lot of it is just like integration-based applications using file transfers. That can easily be, you can stop doing, stop using the mainframe for doing file-based integration. You can do it in Java code instead, right? Um, things like that where the mainframe applications or the mainframe code is not doing what a mainframe typically does best. Um, so, so there is a, there is an entire suite of transformation around just mainframe um, uh, COBOL code that is trapped in the mainframe. Uh, there, there's the, my, my Spring One talk uh, went deep into how to... Um, how to move your workloads from the mainframe to uh, to to distributed systems? So that's that's another entire category of transformation, um, and mm -hmm. and we have just scratched the surface there because a lot of it is still locked there. Most of the techniques around around mainframe transformation revolve around API enabling these um, these mainframe systems and then writing microservices that talk to the APIs. But uh, the crux, but the maximum benefit you can only you can gain maximum benefit by just moving and replacing the code and logic from the mainframe and doing it in distributed systems. And typically, you do that only with the strangler pattern, where you essentially 
write the same feature function in your desired in your desired greenfield application and then sunset the feature from your older application using front end routing magic uh, and cloud foundry enables this using blue green routing and and you can use also micro proxies net netflix oss components to enable that mm, front end routing magic worth 600 some odd million dollars <laughs> that's right so i mean when you you explained the pads well i mean that was that was a great description of the pads i'm assuming you know the Tomcat to boot to PCF path works the same if I'm dealing with a .NET app that I'm refactoring or even a Ruby app that is, again, you get it locally, pull, push it, look for, look for improvements. But, you know, when you encounter someone who says, I have a, I have a, this giant app portfolio, it's a lot of it's old stuff. Mm-hmm. I just want to move, pick it up and move it into this new thing and get all the new hotness that comes with it. Why are you making me change things? I mean, do you encounter that? How do you kind of address the sort of gosh i just want the lowest common denominator just give me all the coolness of without any work do you see that i mean is that something that we should be trying to satisfy more or do we really want to encourage the agility that has to happen with some light refactoring yeah now most serious customers uh, developers enterprise architects are don't want to move it just for the sake of hotness right um so we don't like i haven't run into those kinds of uh, primarily, I'm on the. We are on the post sales side, so maybe sure. all of that already gets filtered by the time the <laughs> engagements reach us. Um, sure. So maybe I'm not the right person to answer that. Um, there are the the use cases for Docker, and I mean the. Uh, I have seen cases where the apps are so big, not big, but they they have gotten tied so closely to what the to the application to what the application server provides. Um, and if they are sufficiently non-strategic and they are meant to sunset, then then yes, it does make sense to get a, a Docker image for WebSphere application server ND, just put it out there and run it in AWS, or even better, run it run it as a Docker image in PCF on AWS. So though there are use cases where you just want to just you don't want to deal with it, you want to package it up and you want to gain the advantages of of a platform like PCF, where we will automatically patch the underlying subsystems. You get some routing enhancements. You get you get the resiliency of a PCF on top of AWS. So there are some use cases, but um, most customers who want to do these migrations are really want to uh, really want business agility. They want the ability to make changes to the application to respond to their other business users down the line. Master. So invariably, if you want to do that, then you have to do some kind of refactoring so that you can make changes in smaller units to your application. And that is where you want to break, either break down your application or put it on a platform that enables rapid changes like Tomcat and Spring Boot. So can, can you like come up with like, uh, I, like, like I, I think, I think, I think we should kind of like wrap up with a kind of an example of a couple of the, uh, areas of patterns that you use to 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 migrate or break things apart and so like like do you have in in your mind or or maybe you can make one up but like an an interesting example of like an application that you might have and then you know i mean i mean it, it it strikes me that there's there's multiple things you have to visit when it comes to uh updating your legacy stuff like we talked about 
you know, needing to change the configuration around so you don't have a dependency on an app server and needing to figure out, uh, we didn't really talk about data and state yet, but needing to figure that out. And then yeah. also this idea of breaking something down into smaller services, right? And so, I mean, I mean, there's, you know, in, in, in your fuller talks and, and things on this, there's, you know, you generally have, if I remember, there's like five to eight sort of things, areas you talk about. But if you pick a couple of those that you think are the most important, like what's an example of like, you know, you get called in and sit down and like you've selected an application and now the fun begins, like like yeah. be, beyond beyond getting it running locally <laughs> and things like that. Like how do you start mucking around with the code and the services and breaking things mm-hmm. down? Um. So in terms of breaking things down, the the easiest way to do it is based on functional decomposition, right? Oftentimes what we see is that the UI of the app is completely enmeshed with the service tier of the application, whereas they could be they could have been completely separate. The UI portion of the application could have um through a published language talk through the services app through the services part of the application. So your first your your first iteration is to split up the UI part of the application from the services part of the application. Mm. And you go into the services part of the application and discover it. And, and then you discover that there are five different categories of web services within the services application. Um, so then you break those five different categories of services into five different uh, applications, five different microservices each each providing a certain set of REST APIs in that particular domain. So then that, that's how you then decompose the services app into five smaller applications. So that is, uh, that, that is how I would go about in a functional decomposition. That's and, the and, easiest form of decomposition. And, and, and to kind of hopefully not interrupt your train of thought here, but, but you know, it strikes me though that the one thing we haven't really addressed is why are you breaking these things into smaller parts? Mm-hmm. Like, what what was wrong with it being a giant thing in the first place? That and and then what right. advantages do you get once you've broken it down? Yeah, absolutely. I think the the key advantage is that you can wrap your head around it, right? Like, uh, <laughs> right. A, a, Every time you start working on the application, you don't have to page the entire state of the universe into your head, right? Um, it's it's the it's the guarantee that if I change this line of code, I'm my blast radius is only this particular. Um, the confidence that you can make changes faster, that you have some cushion that you won't blow up the entire application. This is especially true because on these legacy applications, the people that who have written the application have long gone. You are probably the fifth or the sixth guy down the pole who's reading comments that are probably uh, completely outdated. But those comments are still valuable to you because you try to you you're getting insight into what someone else along the line saw in the code. I, I was actually in this situation when I was working with IBM. I became the tech lead of a component that was ten years old, and so. so Essentially, you just have the code to rely on. Breaking it into smaller pieces gives you confidence that you can change, make make these changes with certain degree of confidence, and you can make those changes faster. Uh, turn around, uh, uh, respond to your customers faster as well. Okay, no, that makes that makes sense. I mean, I mean, I guess, mm-hmm. I guess, if I were to categorize those, I mean, it's it's that uh, we would like to make changes to this software as quickly as possible. That's sort of like the problem statement. And then, and then, well, not that that's, that's the desire statement. And then, yeah. and then the, uh, the problem is like, 
man, using your, your explosion metaphor, if we touch this thing, it's all going to blow up just because we, it's, it's hard for us to understand it. And it's also as a, as, as a, uh, an effect of, of it being hard to understand, it's extremely high risk to make any change because you have no understanding of what, what problems that's going to cause. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you a concrete example. When you are in a, when you are in an application where you are petrified of making a change, what you end up doing is that you end up introducing a ton, millions of these switch, uh, mm. switch conditions in your code, where if this is the original line or logic, um, if, if, if under this runtime variable, move to this alternate line of reasoning and logic. So you keep all of the old code and then you bolt all of the new code with millions of switches in between right. so that if it goes wrong, you can then go back to your older way of working. Right, and this right, then right. just keeps piling on top of one another. It's think of like a, like stratification. You have like one layer over the other just living on top. And this is how you end up in a ball of mud. Imagine someone new looking at this code and they, they, their mind is completely blown, blown apart because there is there are five different flows of the code every time a request comes in. So this, this is the problem. you And, and the complexity becomes squared every time you, you do this exercise. So. Right. This is where you have the metaphors of uh, unraveling a bowl of spaghetti. It's just like uh, a, a, a very, a very low, rewarding, difficult, tedious affair. Yeah, and just well, to come back to your original question, Michael, just to to finish up those, though you asked me for some concrete things around what we see in terms of patterns. Um, dip, uh, if uh, configuration is a big one, right? Where configuration uh, is is law is is captured in um, in files. Uh, either in the proprietary uh, descriptors of the application servers or in properties files or strewn or or sometimes hard coded so we have to uh, remedy the configuration so that it comes from the environment um, or it comes from a scene place at least one place in the file system uh, the, the second thing that we often see is a reliance um, uh, is is a reliance on persistent file system where the application server where the application has been coded to rely on the file system to persist across JVM restarts. Uh, oftentimes, a lot of these applications, these batch office backend office applications, rely on writing a file to an NFS file store and some other application picking it picking picking up the file from the file store. So. We have to remedy those kinds of batch integration applications to use file system as a service. Right, um, that's interesting. We have to remedy often two-faced. Uh, a lot of the code that is written in in enterprise applications, they since two-phase commit was so readily available and distributed transaction managers were baked into the app server. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of applications use transactional when they don't need it or they don't fully understand the ramifications of it so we we have to make changes to to convert those two phase uh, transactions to either one phase transactions or uh, or rely on on eventual consistency there, there is an entire blog post or an entire uh, webinar just on how to fix two phase transactions in the cloud there is an excellent article from Dave Sire that is still the golden standard on that mm. we should put a note in uh, link in your show notes for that we do distributed transactions um 
that those those are the things in terms of security we typically rely on we move from a, a, a saml token aware security to something maybe more federated like oauth um or or federated security models those those are things that we fix we fix logging that's typically some of the that is the first thing that we fix we change the logging so that instead of logging to the file starts logging to standard out and then you go to your higher end gravy features like the netflix oss like like circuit breakers um the uh, your dynamic service discovery with eureka spring sleuth and so on so those are your level 2 features first the bread and butter is to just get the app running in the cloud yeah you got to lay down your foundational mm-hmm. stuff then pour gravy on it always exactly always, uh, <laughs> what you want to shoot for i mean you made a great point there about the uh kind of that agility piece and just you know it's funny when i think of microservices i'll i'll jump to the netflix mindset and think about you know scaling each application component uniquely and all these fun things i'm sure most people haven't even gotten there because they just have a mess that they can't update with any frequency that those other sort of more of advanced value props of microservices come in after you've actually started to decompose this thing and get a handle on it yeah i mean richard in most of these engagements i have i mean you just circuit breaker the basic of all these mm-hmm. netflix oss patterns the the stuff that is as good as gold we don't even get to implementing circuit breaker in a lot sure. of these app apps and, and that is forget oh, his uh, forget eureka and all that that's like much later but that those are the kinds of challenges we face in just fixing the basic stuff before we get to the high end right so i just want to ask you a quick question Rode uh, Cote mentioned it in the beginning that that you both worked together a bit on a uh, esp paper the enterprise mm-hmm. service bus sort of concept and migrating from that. So I wanted your your quick take on that because if we start decomposing monoliths, I think it's pretty easy to say in many cases the ESB has become a monolith for many companies. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, I mean, if you want to maybe just summarize kind of the pr- point you were making in that paper around the evolution to a bit more of a, I guess, of a model that that's simpler than having this big, heavy, centralized bus that everything passes yeah. through. But but where do you think, I mean, from where customers are today, where ESB probably served a really key value prop, but now they're maybe a little hindered by it, given the change in skill sets and the, the pace of the type of integrations you need? Kind of what's the right future state for people who have a lot invested in their existing integration middleware? Yeah, that's, that's a tricky question. So first I would take a deep look into what exactly the ESB is doing. Um ESBs are good for certain things, but once you start encoding business logic into your ESB, at that point it truly becomes a central point. It becomes the it becomes a bottleneck for everything. Um the the advice is radically simple. You have to slim down the ESB. um you have to, you can do that through various ways like using lighter weight integration frameworks like spring integration or camel um and once you lighten the esb then you have to carve carve out vertical microservices from there um align align your esb with along along microservices in a certain domain um and eventually the long term goal is to move all of the logic out of the esb and move from an orchestration to a to a choreo to a choreography uh view of the world so the the uh, there are five phases phase number 1 if you don't do anything you can run the esb in the uh, uh, you can run the esb in the cloud um this is your mainframe strategy where you're basically just living with the problem 
except sure. that it now has it's like lipstick on the pig. You are you have an ESB, but it runs in Pivotal Cloud Foundry. Um, step number two is uh, is simplification, where you are now you start uh, reducing the you put your ESB on the on the gym. And you start gleaning things out using Spring integration or Spring Cloud data flow. Um, and then the step number three is try to completely eliminate the uh, the ESB by by creating vertical microservices and and doing more of choreography and reactive microservices using messaging uh, as your as your uh, using messaging as your backplane rather than the ESB. Interesting. Good. Good stuff. Yeah, I mean the ESB. It's going to be interesting to see where you know as we keep decomposing. I mean, where do you think, Rohit? When we if we all you know we interview you again in a year or two or three or four because Kote and I will never quit. But when we interview you <laughs> in the future with this, you know, our new problems going to emerge when we all wake up and some of these big companies have switched to a microservices architecture. I mean, again, not just doing a pure pivotal plug, but we think we're trying to make operations of that environment easier. But I mean, as you're advising these customers, and all of a sudden they went from one big, hairy, somewhat known monolith to 150 kind of well-known, but just more services they're interfacing with, whether those problems are going to pop up when we interview you in a couple of years and people have actually yeah. adopted microservices at scale? The harder problems, uh, Richard, especially when it comes to the ESBs, are more on the people and the process side. Because oftentimes what happens is that there are camps in a company and that one camp has completely wedded itself to the ESB and the graphical tools that the ESB provides um, another things that uh, another thing that the ESB vendors some of the ESB vendors have gotten right or not gotten right or their marketing has gotten right is that they portray it as when you use this ESB graphic tools you can ensure governance and that your developers don't have to actually write code so then it is viewed upon as a, a as an excellent tool for to to just give offshore developers to go use this tool um and i think that's wrong impression of both the developers and the um and and the tool itself but what i'm trying to convey is that the the people and the process challenges when people completely get wedded to the esb and are not willing to give it up those are the tougher challenges of 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 uh, migrating ESBs to the cloud. Well, I think that's a good place to uh, to wrap up. I, I th- thanks for being on here. I think I think we got a, did a good job of miniature and lengthy laundry lists, which I always appreciate. And uh, you know, <laughs> you 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 also rattled off all sorts of uh, references, and hopefully, I've uh, I've written them all down. We'll put put them in the show notes that people can go uh, look them up. But yeah, it's true. As 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 uh, as ever on any given topic in the uh, in the pivotal world, the overall community, there's always a lot of uh, content on it. If you can just pull it together, so uh, I'll be sure to put those in there. So so thanks for being on. And and if people want to uh, you know look into more of what you're up to or read some of your blog posts or follow you on Twitter or anything, where where should they go for that? They should just Google my name, Rohit Kilapu. They will see my blog and my Twitter posts. Oh, very nice. It's a uh, Matt Mullenweg thing. He, he used to have, you know, the WordPress guy. Maybe he still does, but he had these business cards that just said Google Matt. And uh, <laughs> that, that was that was my, my surname and name are so uh, are, are kind of unique. Uh, as long as you can remember my surname, uh, you should be good. Well, there you go. It's, it's yeah, a, it's a you- challenge for the readers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks for having me guys i really appreciate it uh I keep keep doing this i think you, you guys are doing fantastic uh job
Well, that's nice of you to say. That's fantastic. Well, thanks, thanks, uh, thanks for that, and also thanks for everyone who uh, who listens to us. If 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 you uh, if you happen to want to go into iTunes and look up Pivotal Conversations and leave us a rating or a review, that'd be wonderful. Or you could just harass us in Twitter or email us at podcast at pivotal.io. Over there in uh, in Twitterland, I'm Cote C O T E. What are you, Richard? You can find me at rsaroter. And uh, you can all you can find all the show notes uh, for this if you go to pivotal.io slash podcast, I believe. Uh, and you can find the Pivotal Conversations podcast there somewhere. Also, if you just want to go directly to the sound because you're not interested in text, you can go to soundcloud.com slash pivotal conversations. And be sure to subscribe to that and your uh, your podcast thingamajiggy. And we'll see everyone next time. Bye bye.